Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a very special episode for you. I've invited one of the most fascinating characters in all of shoulder surgery as a guest, Dr. Bassam Alassan, currently co-chief of shoulder service at Mass General Hospital, where he's moved relatively recently after being in the Mayo Clinic for 13 years. Bassam began his medical training at American University in Beirut, but we're heading into cardiothoracic surgery before he changed to orthopedic surgery. He completed residency at the University of Illinois in Chicago, followed by fellowships in hand at Mayo and shoulder and elbow at MGH. And he's since become one of the world's go-to experts on tendon transfer and scapulothoracic disorders, as well as many other things. His lower trapezius and latissimus transfers have largely replaced their antecedent procedures, and his impact is thus immense. Um, we're very fortunate to have him here. I'm actually interviewing him here at the Nice Shoulder Course, so we're currently in France on location, so to speak. Um, and Boston, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this with me. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. I'm happy to be here. So I, I wanted to start at the beginning. Tell us how you decided to become an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, well, um, I come from a family that uh, they are extremely into education. So, um, and it depends. There's certain family they're into, okay, you have to make a career that will make you a lot of money. And there's certain family they are career driven by the type of job that you do. And uh, maybe the majority of Lebanese people, but specifically those in the North area, like where my family uh, are, uh, they were so much becoming a doctor, an engineer, don't care about the money, the money is gonna come later, and then try to focus on that path. path. So um, originally, um, uh, I had um, a situation that really drove me that way. Uh, I'm not sure how much you know about the history of Lebanon, but we lived war most of my youth. And uh, specifically when I was younger, I was still a teen. I, I loved my grandfather, my grandmother, and my grandmother was like always bedridden and she had diabetes, heart disease, and I did not know what was going on. My grandfather was amazing, was taking care of her, but uh, my one of the one time my dad was taking my brother to the university to apply to college, and there was a lot of traffic, so he had to take a different route. There was still a lot of conflict in Lebanon at that time, and he got shot in his leg with an explosive bullet, which essentially shattered his tibia. For me at that time, I had no idea. He uh, bled almost to death because he arrived to the hospital with a blood pressure of 10 or 20. Uh, my uncle at that time, plastic surgeon, he rushed uh, rash, rash to the hospital uh, and uh, brought an orthopedic surgeon with him and they worked on him all night just to salvage his limb because they were planning to amputate his leg. And we were waiting our dad at that time. It was Ramadan. People are fasting. We're waiting. He was supposed to be at 6 p.m. and we cannot hear from him. There's no cell phones at that time. It was 9, 10, 11 p.m. Him and my brother, we don't know what's going on with them. And then my mom got the phone call almost midnight from the hospital where he was transferred to. And they told her story. And we rushed all to the hospital. We spent with him days. My dad is super, super hard worker. He was a lawyer. But he spent three years at home because he had an open tibia. He had, they had to do several surgery for him at that time. External fix at their bone grafting. And my mom was his nurse, essentially. And this is really was the main reason that drove me that route, is what happened. Wow, that's an incredible story for you to live through. It sounds very traumatic. 
<laughs> but it sounds like you've taken a very positive spin from it. Yeah, it is always hard to talk about it. It, uh, it make me emotional. Uh, yeah. But but you know yes it it turned me to what I, I was because I did not know what was going on with my dad. All that I know, my mom is trying to do distressing for him, and it was really frightening. And he he pulled through, and, and yes, this is what what got me here. Okay, so you have this very transformative emotional experience, and then you decided to become a doctor. No, this is yeah. when I decided to become a doctor early on. And even though this was dro- what, what drove me, it was not for me to become an orthopedic. It just drove me to become a doctor. Yeah. And uh, in Lebanon, one of the more, like, uh, if we talk about surgeon, the top at that time, when you talk about a top surgeon or surgeon who is, like, very creative, it would be cardiothoracic surgeon. So, and um, I, wa- I, work, I was working very hard at that time and I was thinking this is what I want to do. I want to do cardiothoracic surgery uh, because I could definitely help. And uh, during that time, as I started uh, in the orthopedic, uh, sorry, as I started in, uh, in, at the UB, it was in surgery. So it's different than here where you do a three years of general surgery and then you do three years of orthopedics. During those years, I was essentially general surgery on the cardiothoracic service, and we saw a large number of trauma, bullet injuries, stuff like this. The majority were extremities, and there are a lot of them will try to manage, but even though they did an extremely good job, many of them, they end up having significant disability. And I thought, you know what? This is what I want to do. I want to become an orthopedic, shoulders, uh, orthopedic surgeon to repair limbs and hopefully I'll be able to help some of these people that, that even though we tried our best with them, they could not have a functional, good functional recovery. So did you have to then switch paths from cardiothoracic to orthopedics yes. midway through residency? Well, uh, the, the way it is different, it's different than here because the way it is done in Lebanon is you start regardless, even if you want to do orthopedics, you have to start through uh, surgery. And, and early on during my surgery rotation, this is when I start to change. And then you have to go through the three years either way. And then this is where I applied. And I usually out of 73, they take only one ortho every year. And I was lucky to get it at that time. And then, so, you, then you come to the United States. Yeah. And at that time, again, this is another next level. Next level is because, again, again, it, we worked a lot and very hard. And Lebanon at that time, no resources. Many times we study on a candle because there's no electricity. Many times we have to shower, we have to get a gallon of water and warm it to shower with it because there was no water many times. Many times we cannot see our family for a long time, even though they live 45 minutes away from us. So really our, our focus was if we can do anything, we'll essentially dedicate our life to our education. Hopefully we'll be able to come up with something despite all the struggle we, we, we went through. And uh, it, was, it was essentially like, uh, it was essentially hard work and... Uh, Okay, I forgot what was what was the point. Like, see, I get distracted when I thought about this stuff. And then how did you come to America from this situation? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's exactly the point. So I started uh, in orthopedics. I was very excited about it. Many, many times uh, there are situations that our top orthopedic surgeon over there, they have, they have, we have excellent orthopedic surgeon, in fact. They did not know how to solve. They're excellent in spine, trauma, pediatric, arthroplasty. But when it comes to hand, sport, anything like this, it was very, very poor. And I said, you know what? I cannot do that. I really want to go to a place that I'll be able to learn these things because it's not fair. Patient coming to me, I ask all my good surgeons that over there, 
and nobody can answer me. And I tried to figure it out in books. It's hard to figure out in books. So I decided at that time to apply to United States to come mainly because I want to get the appropriate education to get me to the upper extremity. I knew from that time I want to do upper extremity. And this is when I applied to United States. So you come here and then basically redo a portion of your training. I did the whole thing again. Yeah. So after four years, I, I came and, and redid the whole thing. And there's a story that most of my residents know because when I came here, my English was okay. Uh, even now you have like have an accent, but my English was really very rough with a very strong accent, but I was really uh, kind of overtrained. And uh, one of my rotations in Chicago was in a hospital which is level one trauma. And I was just starting that hospital. I was an intern in orthopedic, but a rotating in general surgery. And we had a young patient, 22 years old, who got shot in the heart. And as they got him inside the emergency room, uh, I was there. And I essentially took him to the OR, did the sternotomy, and I repaired his heart at that time, and I was an intern, and I got in trouble. <laughs> so at that time, the chairman called me. He told me, you never do that again. We're gonna forgive you because you saved his life, but you're just an orthopedic intern. I remember it very well. And I did not understand because this is what I used to do at home. Like this is, I'm used to it. I did not know that we are very restricted. But this is kind of like what was part of the funny story about 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 this one, about the, the training here. So, you, so then, and at that point, it sounds like you'd already you already knew that you were interested in kind of upper extremity. Yes, yes. So then, from there, you go to the Mayo Clinic first. Yes. So uh, thinking you're going to do hand. Yes, but again, not to uh, like overemphasize this, but because of my background, because of what we have been through, since I was in Lebanon and I did this four years of residency, I repeated again and I started again for five years of residency. In almost nine years, I think I did not take more than one, one true vacation. Every vacation I had as an intern, I traveled either in US or abroad to spend time with non-surgeon that I feel I'm a big fan of. So essentially I traveled to Europe and I traveled to United States during my residency because I did not want to waste time going vacations. I thought this would be the right thing to do. And this is how I became friendly with many, many of them. So who did you go to visit? Oh, I, I visited Biliani at that time. I was uh, with Madsen. I visited uh, uh, Rockwood. I visited uh, Body Savoie, I visited, I visited a very large number of people. Wow. And in Europe, I came, I spent time with Laura Lafosse, Pascal Boileau, I spent time with Jill Walsh, I spent time with a lot of people. So this is how I spent my vacations for the longest period of time. Wow, so you're, during residency, kind of building this additional training. And then tell me what, what drove you towards the Mayo Clinic from there? Well, Mayo Clinic was, even when I was in Lebanon, like there are two names that are really, really, really big in Lebanon and the Middle East, Mayo and Harvard in Mass mm -hmm. General. And yeah. I think this is everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, even because I spent a lot of time in the emergency room, we have a lot of casualty wars and stuff like this, and we relied on the Mayo Manual a lot. Uh. So I said, one day I want to go to that place. And anytime I read about upper extremity, it was mostly like, especially elbow, it was Boris' book. So uh -huh. it, it became my obsession almost. I want to go to Mayo. I want to meet that person whose name is Mori. I want to see because I want to think about what everything is done with this elbow and et cetera, because I couldn't, nobody could help me at that time very well with elbow. This so is why you, I chose Mayo. Did you go to visit the Mayo Clinic then during your residency? Before, yes, I did. In fact, I visited uh, Cooney, hand surgeon at that time. I visited Mori at that time. I visited a number of them, yes. 
and then said, okay, well, then we'll go back for a fellowship. Yeah, yeah, so it was tricky. And during, again, residency, because uh, I was really very, very dedicated. I was a big nerd, by the way, big nerd. I did not go anywhere. I spent five years in Chicago. I swear, I barely know the downtown because I was from the hospital to my book, to the library. This is it. And uh, yeah, but uh, essentially, I dedicated anytime there is research, I will jump on it. Anytime there is a a lab I can do. And uh, Mark Gonzalez at that time was a hand surgeon. Now he's a chairman at UIC where I was trained. He was so happy I was there because any th- anything he wants, book, manuscript, I will jump on it and I'll work on it. So I was able to get a fair number of publications and good letter of recommendations. And I applied to Mayo and I was really, really hoping this is what I'm going to... I applied to many, many hands, uh, programs at that time, but I was hoping to get Mayo and I, I got it at that time. And then tell me what drove you to consider doing a second fellowship. That's a relatively unusual thing. Unusual for people from here. Uh, ah. be, be, and again, in Lebanon, we feel we're kind of under-trained. We have a lot of surgical experience, uh, hands-on, but we feel we need more training. So if you it happened over time with this podcast, you interview more people overseas, you realize most of them, they do at least two fellowships, sometimes three. So for me, I felt hand is not enough. I need to do shoulder. And not only this, I really like hand, but I love shoulder. But they keep on teaching us a shoulder surgeon stay lateral to the coracoid. And I wanted to be very comfortable staying medial to the coracoid. So this is one of the also main reason I did the hand because I want to be very comfortable with the nerve and arteries. And this is why I felt like I need, I love hand, head so elegant. I will be very comfortable. I can spend my time medial to coracoid. They will teach me to spend my time lateral to coracoid. Now I can get the whole scoop. This is what happened. Okay, now, um, so you've, you've done all of this training. You've trained, you've double trained both in Lebanon and then in the United States, and then you've done two fellowships. Your family's still in Lebanon. Yes. Did you think about going back? Yes. So tell me what, what, what kept you here? Well, uh, when, despite, when I, <laughs> I will tell you a funny story. When I matched here, and I'm gonna mention the story very quickly because I applied to 80 program and I got zero interviews. Holy smokes. Yes, so, yeah. and the only uh, place I got the letter from at that time is from University of Illinois. They said, you have great credentials, you've done residency and et cetera, but it is really hard for foreigners to come here. We recommend for you to come and spend the year here, let people know you will have a better chance. Yeah. And at that time, what happened, they put me on the rank list, but they did not put me high. But it happened that year that this number matched. So I ended up matching. Ah. When my, when at that time, there was no laptop. There's one room that has computer and you have to stay in line to go. <laughs> and then during the match day, it was crazy because people were staying in line to go to that computer. For me, I looked, I, they told me I'm not going to match this year. And I don't know what matching is regardless. Yeah. It was Friday night. I was going back home because I am in Beirut and my family is in North. It requires 45 minutes driving. I was leaving at night. Everyone left. Everyone checked the result. Everyone cheered. And I said, you know what? I just want to see how it's looked. At least for next year when I apply, at least I know how it looks like on the computer. I remember I plugged, I put my name and etc. And say they match. I did not react. I said, what do they mean they match? I say, congratulations, you matched. I said, I don't understand. I logged off again, logged on again. This, my name, number. I unplugged the computer and plugged it again, <laughs> very seriously. I said, oh my God, I match. I start to scream, there's no one, no one to tell because everyone left. <laughs> but at that time, when I told my family, the f- this is exactly the reaction. 
oh, that's awesome. What do you mean? Are you leaving? That was the reaction. <laughs> they did not care how important it was. So it was very, very dramatic for me to leave because I like I always lived at home and I did not leave. So it was hard for me to leave early on. I talked to my family every single day since then, every single day for the past 22 years. It rarely ever one day passed that I don't talk to my family. And if a day passed, even my, despite my age, my mom's telling me, why would not hear you yesterday, even despite now? And the, the deal was, I finished five years, I go back home. Then yeah. I told them, let me do my fellowship, the first and the second year. I told them, let me finish these two, I'll go back home. Then yeah. I got the opportunity to work at me. I said, this is dream come true. Let me at least spend a few years with them, and then I'll go back home. It's always, always my hope to go back home to help my, my country and my people at the same time, because I want to, this is why, how it started. And then uh, when I got the job at Mayo at that time, uh, may his soul rest in peace, uh, uh, Dick Berger was was the chairman of hand surgery. And he told me, everyone, in November, if you get a job, you're going to say, yes, I'm here. I want to be here and stay. He told me, so are you excited you're going to get a job here? He said, I told him, yes, but I'm not going to stay long. He told me, we we got you here and you have a visa issue, etc. I told him, I'm being very honest with you. I have to go back home. He told me, can you give me five years? Only five years. I told him, I can give you five years. And I talked to my family, the same. And it essentially dragged, it dragged. And eventually I stayed here and the situation overseas became very bad. Yeah. So I stayed. This is what happened. But I always had the intention to go back and help. And right now, uh, uh, every, uh, like at least four to five times per year, I go overseas Lebanon, definitely, I do a lot of surgeries for free. And I travel internationally to a lot of countries, third world countries that require help. And also I operate for free, a lot. So I still do it routinely every, like uh, many, many times during the year. So this brings me to my, to the next area that I want to chat with about. So you you go, you're, you're trained to do hand and shoulder surgery. You have this interest in the plexus. And you go to the Mayo Clinic, which of course is a magnet for rare and unusual things. Yes. And then from there, you've made this subspecialty area that almost didn't really even exist before of tendon transfers. Tell me, tell me the journey from, from, from how did you get into this? Where did, how did you develop this interest that it seems like is, you're perfectly suited for? I mean, you have, you have this creative personality and you had all of this training. It just seems like a perfect match between an unmet need and your particular skill set. Okay, so I know this podcast. We did not talk me and you about this before, right? You did not know how I got into this. No. Okay. No. So, you know what? Ironically, sometimes there are certain things happen in your life that meant to be. Right. This is what right. happened. Like in the United States, remember, if you are trained in nerve and hand and trained in shoulder, it's extremely hard to fit, even in places like Mayo. Right. Because what, who hired me at that time is the hand group. And you know, like, even though they get along, but the hand is one thing, the shoulder is one thing. Right. right. So, and now this is a reality what happened at right. that time. It, the deal was, we were happy to have you, but you'll do hand, you cannot do shoulder. Ah, I didn't know that. Yes. And at that time, it was dream come true, like you're coming to work at the Mayo Clinic, but I really love shoulder. And I remember the hand surgeon at that time told me, Basim, don't worry, this is a Mayo Clinic. They always open, even though they're saying this right now, but they're always like, they look at, at the skills, the talents, and eventually it's going to work out. I told yeah. them, okay. So that's what happened. What happened is I started hand surgery, and third months through my, uh, my job, Alan Bishop was a chairman of hand surgery at that time. He came to me, he told me, Basim, you're a shoulder surgeon. I know you do. I was allowed to do only paralytic shoulder because nobody wants to do para paralytic shoulder. 
He told me, we do all these brachial plexus cases and they get elbow, they keep on rubbing on their belly because they have no external rotation. We cannot, we could not improve external rotation. Is there any way you can help? I said, okay, I went to the lab. The Mayo is amazing with this. So we went to the lab and I start to work. It's like, what works in brachial plexus? Oh, wait a second, spinal accessory work. Can we do anything with the trapezius? And I look at the cadavers like, why look at the look it's a, we talk about the houses like this is a house of the rotator cuff which is scapula and this is the lower trap they look exactly the same house why don't we transfer this from here to here that's an easy transfer and we have the spinal accessory that was my third month of my practice and i remember very well i went back to alan bishop i told him alan i did not check if it was published before i told him i'm pretty sure this is published before but why don't we transfer the lower trap to the i was seeing it very casually i have a video I'm taking it with my hand with the frozen specimen because I thought like, you know, I still have to do the biomechanical study and prove it. But I thought, I remember very well, he was typing and he stopped. He looked at me and told me, Basim, this is never published before. I told him, Alan, this is, I don't know, I'm pretty sure I will look it up, but it looks like very straightforward. He told me, look it up. And I looked up, I could not find it. So we went to the lab, we did the anatomic study, biomechanical study. It was, it looked perfect transfer. So we did it. And I was very surprised. I showed, like today, I showed the first patient we did in 2007. He got external rotation. We were all very thrilled. Now, all the brachial plexus patients that have nerve reconstruction, they brought them back to Mayo for me to operate on them to get them tendon transfer. <laughs> so now we have this a huge load of patients. They have elbow flexion, but they have no shoulder external rotation. Yeah. As we are doing this, we start to think, what else I can do? We have the upper trap, maybe with abduction. What do we have? Some patients have back. So it evolved one after one. And now I start to feel like, you know, it seems from the understanding of the brachial plexus, if you really know the mechanics, the anatomy, you really, the human body is incredible. You can really reanimate the body and be able to make it work. And every tendon transfer I came, I felt or thought about, I went to the lab, I tried it, it is safe, biomechanical, anatomic, we talked to the patient, we did it. And this is how one after one got there. And after a few years, the shoulder, elbow, like the group at Mayo embraced me. And now we're applying it. All of it is not only for the paralytic shoulder, but right. for the shoulder with rotator cuff pathology and different pathology. This is the story. So the story is, so I just want to make sure I understand this. They present you with this problem. You do an anatomical dissection. You say, this looks like it could work. Then you do... Anatomic and biomechanical study. And then tell me, so then this patient, the patient comes to you and you say... Yeah. Tell me the dis discussion you have with patient one. Well, this is, this is, yeah. I'll tell you, for example, the very first patient. This is exactly what happened. Uh, the patient wants external rotation. There's nothing. And even, I, I'm not sure if he has latissimus, but when you don't have deltoid, if you do lat transfer, is a disaster, is bad. Because it subluxates the shoulder. Right. So, but at that time already, I've done the studies on the lower trap. And I told him, uh, my friend, so far right now, there is no option to restore active external rotation. But we have a new design idea that we were able to test it in the lab. I showed him the drawing. What you've done? He told me, I don't care. I will sign right now. If you think it has a chance, please do it. So I'll tell him, okay, let's go for it. It is safe from like everything we've, we've done from the lab, etc. And it was relatively really safe. So we did it and he did it and it happened. And then the second patient will tell them, we did one, the patient did very well. The brachial plexus patient, anything like they love anything to be done just to help them because they go to many places, they tell them there's nothing else we can do for you. So as long as you show them that First of all, you've done appropriately the anatomic study, you appropriately the biomechanical study. It's shown in this study they are safe and feasible. Usually patient, 
they are happy to sign consent to go for it and have it done because they feel they have a chance. And luckily, almost all what we have done, we were able to, to have a positive kind of outcome. Okay, so you have this. So this procedure from here, I'm sure you're aware, has dramatically changed our treatment of rotator cuff disorders. Tell me, where did you get the idea to port this from the paralytic shoulder to the cuff? Did that seem like a natural transition? Was there an aha moment there? Well, um, also a great question. Uh, the, when the time passes and you feel you get the grasp of how amazing the human body is, understanding the anatomy biomechanics, when you start to walk, many times if I'm on the beach or someone playing, Many times I'm looking as they're working, maybe most of the time to see how they shoot or how they spike. For me, I'm looking exactly how the scapula is moving and the shoulder and how they're coordinating the muscle. It became, over time you have almost this 3D in your head. It's almost like virtual reality. You're seeing exactly how the muscle and many, many times it clicks. Yes, this is how it's working. Oh, look at this, look at this muscle. Look when he moves his arm, how it's working. And it becomes so good to, to get this from my brain into into the lab and everything else Ve and then you start to use logic the human body is amazing we know the anatomy we know the biomechanics we know what's safe not safe <clears throat> i know where the nerves are and everything else if this procedure <clears throat> worked for patients who have nothing no deltoid no rotator cuff why will not work for someone who has tear of the rotator cuff but everything else is working and like to do the biomechanics study is already done because we did it in brachial plexus injury so it started with an open transfer for the massive rotator cuff tear. And then like anything else, I had a fellow, it was, I have a fellow with me from Spain and it's like, you know what, we can do it arthroscopic, but we have to do it in a way to not be very challenging. And we start to work on it in the lab to do it. And we found we can do it in relatively an easy way to do it the way what, what everyone like, no, hopefully like they do it the same, except they use hamstring, but essentially they go and how to attach the tendon and then eventually. So this is how it progressed. Um, now, I wanted to ask you about the scapula. I mean, you just mentioned that you're watching the scapula, and that's, I think, you know, we had J.P. Warner on, and he quickly said that you're redefining our understanding of the scapula. And certainly, I think that's something you've moved into because it's another relatively unknown area. One of the things I wanted to ask you about there is your scapula pexy procedure. Yeah. Tell us, because this is also, <clears throat> I think, as far as I can tell, a relatively new thing. Yeah, so uh, the scapula for me... Uh, it was my big enigma when I was resident. I never ever understood what the medial, I'm not joking, medial and lateral winging, it kept on confusing me. I know long thoracic, medial, uh, spinal accessory, lateral, but every time when I examine, I have no idea what they mean exactly. Yeah. And it kept confusing me. At the same time, uh, throughout our training, nobody talked exactly the anatomy of the serratus, how it insert, how exactly work on the scapula. And the same for the trapezius. So I became, I always become like, I, I know I can understand, but I'm not still getting this. And when you read, it's not very, very clear. So I became very determined to try to understand the scapula much, much better. And we did a lot of anatomical study on the function of different muscles. And we start to come up with, uh, with the different uh, definitions and different treatment. And uh, what I realized over time, that even though we have hundreds of things about the rotator cuff, the different type, the deltoid, and etc. We have very, very few things about the scapula. Paralysis, either spinal accessory or long thoracic. 
or you have snapping or you have dyskinesia. We don't have anything else. Very little things that you essentially, we are treating all the pathology in the scapula under these three or four category. And this is how these things started. And then over time with a lot of work, tremendous work on the scapula, as much as I've done on the, the tendon transfer, I would say, I realized there are two type of problem in the scapula when it comes to soft tissues. Uh, there is a functional problem and there is a structural problem. Structural problem, it could be bone or muscle. It means the muscle is paralyzed or the bone is deficient or combination. Uh, this functional problem, it means the bone is normal, the muscle is normal, but the way they interact is not normal. If the pectoralis minor is hyperactive, if the upper trapeze is hyperactive. So, and this is something I say it very often to patients. If they have, let's say, the, a shoulder, abnormal shoulder on the right, I tell them, left, raise the left side. They go. I told them, in two seconds, you raise your left shoulder. Did you know what you've done? He said, yeah, I raised my shoulder. I said, you did not think about it. You asked your brain, my brain, move my shoulder, you moved it. But you, what you did not know, you did not say, activate my serratus, activate my trapezius, now activate my deltoid and supra and infra and subscap to get your motion. No. You have this integration of different electricity working on this muscle to move in two seconds. When this go out of synchrony, now you have a functional problem. And this is what we try to work on for a long period of time. And then we realize like if we'll be able to reverse it, if we'll be able to give the brain a pause from this ongoing abnormal functional problem, by releasing something will be very low risk to release like pec minor and try to hold the scapula and stabilize it on the chest wall. It rewire these kind of muscle make them to function better. And this is the whole idea about the scapula pexy and pectoralis minor release. So the scapula pexy is to help stabilize it while the muscles rehabilitate essentially. That's correct. Got it. That's correct. Okay, now the, the, the other procedure, and you've just given a talk about it here, is this pedicle pectoralis major. Yeah. Maybe less commonly necessary, thankfully, as you know, I, I, certainly in my own practice in axillary nerve palsy is one of the more feared complications. I mean, certainly the first rule of shoulder surgery is do no harm to the deltoid. So this procedure, where did you come up with this idea? Do you think that it works better than our other existing options like the Saha transfer? Yeah. Tell us about tell us about it. Again, again, like knowing the anatomy and biomechanics will help tremendously with understanding uh, these. Um, now, the deltoid is extremely, extremely powerful muscle. In fact, when we studied, uh, not my, myself, but uh, uh, Herzberg, when he studied the tension, which is the strength of the muscle, the deltoid was extremely the most powerful. And if we try to reconstruct the deltoid with, with anything which is not powerful, it's not going to work very well. So the Saha procedure is essentially la lateralizing and distalizing the trapezius, which the fu function of the trapezius is mostly to lift the, the scapula up. And even if we do it, it cannot go distal on the humerus. If you think about the anatomy of the deltoid and how it's originate from the clavicle and acromion and go very distal to the almost uh, middle, uh, middle to the proximal third of the humerus, these fiber, they are wrapping all around the humerus to give you this nice function. So if you take just some of this fiber of the trapezius to lateralize them, it can stabilize, but it will rarely, without rotator cuff, it will rarely give you a nice abduction or flexion. So you, we needed to bring a muscle without doing a free muscle transfer, which means not taking the muscle from one place to another place and neurotize it and wait a year or whatever. If we can use something locally, but we use our logic and understanding of the human body and just to change the vector of the line of pull of the muscle. The pect is meant to adduct the shoulder. It's a very important muscle for me and for you because we have normal shoulder. 
But when the shoulder is paralyzed, the patient, whenever they try to flex, they're essentially adducting with you with no motion. This is when we can borrow this muscle and we change the vector from horizontal to vertical. Now we change from an adduction to a flexor. And this is, we also worked on it in the lab. It was very feasible as long as you know the anatomy, you know where the pedicle is. And when you flip the muscle to get these fibers aligned along the same line of the deltoid, it should give you a good flexion. And this is how we started it as well. Now you've been through something that's really difficult, which is that you've essentially invented a new procedure. Um, and uh, many surgeons go through a similar process when they try and learn something new. Certainly our residents go through it when they try and learn all of the procedures we do for the first time. Um, I'm hoping you can share your wisdom. What advice would you have for many of our listeners who are trainees or surgeons who are in their practice as they approach something they've never done before? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm very glad you asked this question. Um, for everyone who's listening, this is rarely ever an easy path. Uh, there are gonna be a lot of frustration. You're gonna have a lot of resistance. Maybe it's meant to be correct. Like I started, my path started in a place where I was forced to be doing something that I was hoping to do even more, but they end up helping me developing these procedures. But whenever this is the beginning of your career, and you really have, and all, I'm pretty sure all of you have a very bright mind, and you try to come up with something in you. For those of us who have been doing things for a long, long period of time, it's always tricky to try to introduce a new idea, not based on foundation, strong studies to prove this is a good idea. And in this situation, you're gonna have many, many people resisting you. You have no idea how many times I got shut down, there are, I'm not going to mention names. There are very, very good shoulder surgeons. I remember I was be in a meeting. They talk about master rotator cuff tear. I raise my hand. I tell them, what about this procedure? Like the lower trap, we have been doing them. I remember a surgeon extremely well known. He told me, this is a procedure. You're the only person who does it. Hopefully, you'll prove over time it works. But for now, I don't find it. I don't find the place to be done. And at that time, I could not say anything. And that surgeon right now, it's one of his favorite procedure. He does it. <laughs> Just to tell you, ironically, uh, it's the persistence, persistence. One more example quickly, Alain Gilbert, if anyone if you know him, Alain Gilbert is the father of uh, obstetric brachial plexus injury. When I came up with some of this new idea and reconstruction of the shoulder with bony anatomy and bony reconstruction, two to three times he shut me down completely. And anyway, one time he looked at me and said, like, who is this? Who is this one talking? And for the record, uh, I was with him. He called me. I was the only surgeon from US. He called me to come help him in cases in Algeria. We did a large number of cases for mission work. And now um, I'm invited to his meeting, Breakleback's meeting for shoulder reconstruction and giving many lectures. We became very good friends. So uh, my advice to you, don't let, as long as you have a good mind, as long as you do it safely for the patient, as long as you mean to improve the patient quality, you do it right. You take it to the lab, you test it, you make sure. Just keep persistence. You'll be surprised how much you're capable to do, but don't let those who cannot block you to, this, to, to, to slow you down. Just keep it on, keep it going. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, you've been really successful in really changing a lot of things that we do. You've been impactful upon our careers. And I think for a lot of us as surgeons, is that the same thing I hope for? I mean, I hope to positively impact my patients' lives, but through our research and educational efforts, we hope to positively impact other surgeons so they can secondarily impact their, their, surgeons live, their patients' lives. <clears throat> 
What I want to ask you about is what, for people who are listening who want to achieve the same thing, they want to make a positive impact, what, um, you know, aside from the things they do for their patients, what, what advice would you have for them? How can they, how can they achieve this? Well, um, <coughs> you know, it, it all goes back to why you are doing what you are doing. I sincerely love what I do. And I know, and I hope all of you also love what you do. I, um, I, I entered, I know I did medicine because of my background history. I had a very, very long 19 years of education because I start residency, I have to repeat residency and everything else. If I go back, I will do it again because I really love to help patients. I love to improve life. I love to improve the patient quality. If you have them this way, my advice to you, I know all of us, this is very important. You work, you get reimbursed, uh, like you need to get to make your money. But trust me, make the patient care and improving patient your, your priority. This is why we're doctors. Keep on doing what you're doing well and make sure like you improve it to become excellent at it. If you have new ideas, don't mistrust yourself. Don't like underestimate what you can think. Believe me, I come from a village in Lebanon that I was dreaming one day I will be able to see Mayo Clinic. I'll be able to see Harvard. I'll be able to see some of the surgeons and now they are all my friends and I'm like now the co-chief at, 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 uh, at Harvard and I'm professor at Harvard. I never ever thought that the one day that I will be here, never. But I really, really worked hard. I really cared about patient. I really cared about getting them better and I keep on doing this. This is what I advise you. I mean it, do it, care for your patient, care for your family, try to keep it going. If you have idea, don't underestimate yourself. Try to also surround your, yourself with people who are positive, who can impact you positively. And those who are negative, it's okay, but don't let them be in your way. This is what I advise you. Well, that's all the time we have for our podcast. I wanna thank you for spending your time with us. I, I really appreciate it. This has been incredible to have you on. I mean, it's an incredible story that our listeners, I think, are gonna really connect with. Thank um, you. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Um, to all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.